For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. And in this readout video from our final Wednesday Wake Up email newsletter of 2022, we note that back in the day, people used to dream of a white Christmas. Now, like almost everything else, it's been politicized, including climate alarmists wanting slush or drought to prove that there's climate breakdown, while skeptics hope for six feet of the fluffy stuff to prove that there isn't, and shoveling be hanged. But facts are facts, and much of the world faced an unusually harsh start to winter in 2022, or, south of the equator, summer, as the coldest December day in 50 years devastated the Tasmanian tourist industry, and New South Wales, Australia, faced a possible white Christmas in summer, though not at sea level. As for the United States, imagine the news stories about climate if this exact map were being run, but with deep red anomalies this far above normal instead of deep blue ones this far below it. Certainly our own hometown got the snowy stuff in amounts that would have had frosty capering, but the Australian Broadcasting Corporation brushed off their conditions as just weather. Quote, The current spell of chilly weather is unusual in its longevity due to a blocking pattern, end quote. But should a heat dome develop, it won't be some rubbishy block, it'll be the climate apocalypse. And here, we do want to give NBC credit for not actually blaming climate change in a story that said, quote, The severe weather in Texas occurred as a major winter storm was also pummeling Louisiana, with more than 10 million people under winter weather warnings or advisories across the Rockies and the Northern Plains states, end quote. Yes, that would be Louisiana, the famous steamy swamp state at the mouth of the Mississippi River. And meanwhile, places that are more used to snow were getting wind chill forecasts as bad as minus 46 Fahrenheit in Bismarck, North Dakota, which might leave you screaming of a white Christmas, but surely not about global heating. And speaking of screams, we hope that climate activists will soon find a less childishly offensive way of venting their misguided rage than destroying classic art. But it seems unlikely, especially because of the bizarre way they're coddled including an astounding story out of Britain that when motorists began honking at just-stop-oil activists blocking traffic and keeping cancer patients from reaching a treatment facility in the process, police leapt into action threatening fines for... one of the guys honking. As for blocking traffic, well, keep obnoxious and carry on. Despite the famous policing principles of Sir Robert Peel, founder of the London Bobbies, also known as the Metropolitan Police, they were the first modern professional police force, and his key point here is number seven, quote, to maintain at all times a relationship with the public that gives reality to the historic tradition that the police are the public and that the public are the police. The police being only members of the public who are paid to give full-time attention to duties which are incumbent on every citizen in the interests of community welfare and existence, end quote. But it is not conceivable that the public would think it incumbent on themselves to keep patients and doctors from getting to hospitals. And now, a word from our sponsor. And that's you. Because at the Climate Discussion Nexus, we're dependent upon support from our viewers and our readers. Please go to our donate page, make a one-time pledge, or if you can, a monthly one. I'm not talking a lot of money, though. If you've got it, we'll take it. $2 a month, $3, $5. That's the sustaining funding that we need to produce these videos on our newsletter. And now, back to me. Some lecturer in global policy and activism at Goldsmiths, University of London, who's also co-convener of MA Post-Colonial Culture and Global Policy, end quote, insisted in The Guardian that, quote, the battle between climate protesters and the government is raging and most people know who's in the right, end quote. <laughs> 
But if that's the case, why do you need to protest? You already convinced the public, or so you insist. And why is it then urgent that, quote, rather than coming into confrontation with ordinary people, the climate movement seeks common cause with their struggles, end quote, such as um, affordable energy or being able to drive your car down the street or at all? The world almost got a Christmas gift of endless practically free energy, or so it seemed, with gee whiz news stories about scientists at Lawrence Livermore National Lab doing something or other to do with nuclear fusion. Unfortunately, it turned out that they very briefly got more power out of a reaction than they put in by putting in way more first. And a vigilant CDN reader punctured the overwrought claims by chortling, quote, Gee whiz, commercially viable fusion energy is now just 25 years away, as it was in the early 70s when I first read about it, end quote. And then he dropped the hammer with, quote, If the discussion swings at all toward nuclear energy, we could hope that perhaps people would say, Hey, that fusion stuff sounds great and all, but it's so far out in the future. Isn't there some other kind of nuclear energy we could use, like, right now? End quote. Gosh, can you imagine? And what's more, a lot of countries actually already built the very plants needed for that kind of energy and then panicked and closed them, so really they just need to turn them back on. Amazing. What will they think of next? Well, finding a harder way to do less. After decades of being told that climate change can be solved with a few small lifestyle changes, you might be surprised to see a climate alarmist like the New York Times graphics editor opinion, Gus Werezek, heckling his fellows for not realizing the magnitude of the sacrifices that the movement really has in store for us. Wezerick starts with a sympathy ploy, saying, quote, Like most of my friends, I've settled on a small list of sacrifices that I'm willing to make to try to stop climate change. I'm a vegan. I unplug the microwave when I go on vacation, end quote. Some of us don't think that giving up meat and cheese is a small sacrifice, nor do we have, or want, friends who fret about their carbon footprint morning, noon, and night. But the key point is that, while illustrating a guest essay by Sander van der Linden, he discovered that he was himself a planet-trashing clod. Now, van der Linden is, of course, a climate scientist, or, to be tactical about the matter, quote, a professor of psychology at the University of Cambridge, end quote, who, quote, has been studying how people think about climate change for more than a decade, end quote. So he and the artist teamed up with other climate scientists, or more precisely, pollsters, to discover that Americans are basically Homer Simpson on the climate crisis and only got one question right. We did better, but not by much, and of course we were assisted by having read part of the article first. Anyway, most American chumps were somehow persuaded that turning down the temperature and recycling things would help somehow, perhaps because persistent mislabeling of carbon dioxide as pollution convinced them they shouldn't just throw it in the trash. But they didn't realize that electric cars were secretly cheaper than gas ones despite costing more. In any case, apparently the real solution is having no car, getting a windmill, and eating a vegan diet. Luckily, though, it turns out that buying fewer things is no real help. That's the one question half of Americans aced. And we'd say, yeah, start by not buying this survey. Or most government programs to fix the weather by raising taxes. Including, an amazing tale, the Canadian government put aside billions of dollars to help oil workers grow kale or install solar panels or animate computer games or something. And over the past decade, in a glittering triumph of deliverology, they've managed to spend... Uh, net zero. That's right. They can't even throw money out windows, the one thing governments are famously good at. But apparently, they can make it colder and hope the crops don't die. It's called a whole-of-government approach or something. 
Now, on the plus side, we're happy to report a new study suggesting that some, or perhaps most, of any warming that has happened in the last 20 years may have been natural. And this study is remarkable not so much for its content, important as it is, as for its source. As David Whitehouse underlines at Net Zero Watch, it comes from the University of Oxford and the U.S. National Center for Atmospheric Research via the Journal of Climate. So, these guys are not deniers. And we say, if the taboo on discussing this possibility is broken, then real science can resume. And the piece is typically almost unreadable on the sound biological principle employed by creatures from skunks to monarch butterflies that being inedible deters predators. But, spelunking the prose, Whitehouse emerges with this key chunk, quote, Although recent GMST trend changes may originate from anthropogenic ERF trends in isolation, PDO and ENSO signals co-vary substantially over the period. Meaning credible counter-hypotheses include a smaller aerosol ERF trend change assumption since 2000, with GMST trend change arising largely from internal variability, end quote. So you're not going to get in trouble saying stuff like that. But translated into English, it means temperature trends in the last 20 years might be due to natural causes. It just depends what assumptions you put into your computer program. And if it's true that they might be natural, it puts the kibosh on the whole CO2 as the control knob of the global thermostat theory. You know, alarmists are pretty slick with their explanations of why warming causes cooling if it happens to be cold. But at some point, a very basic point becomes visible through the rhetorical fog. If rising carbon dioxide does not reliably correlate with rising temperature over time, then the theory that it does is wrong. In the last newsletter of 2022, we also brought our Everybody Knows series to a close by focusing on the biggest claim of the modern age, namely that climate change is an emergency, a crisis, a catastrophe, or worse. Use your imagination or a thesaurus. For our part, we use a brilliant new essay by climatologist Judith Curry on her Climate Etc. blog, in which she reframes the whole concept of risk by asking a simple question. If people thought that the mild warming over the last century was natural, would they call it bad? Of course not, she argues. Indeed, she says, people wouldn't even think there'd been warming, or the various horrible consequences that alarmists keep hollering about, if alarmists didn't keep hollering about them. Because in fact, quote, experience a great deal of weather and climate variability over the seasonal cycle and from year to year, end quote, and because in the last century, quote, life expectancy has increased substantially, economies have prospered, and loss of life from weather catastrophes has been greatly reduced, end quote. Still, it's the supposed link with extreme weather that's wagging the dog, and she admits that 20 years ago she helped hype, quote, the now famous Webster et al. 2005 paper that identified a doubling in the proportion of Category 4 and 5 hurricanes since 1970, end quote. And by now, she says, quote, scientists who should know better just can't resist the opportunities for media attention and enthusiastically place blame on human-caused global warming, end quote, whenever some extreme piece of weather occurs, even though, she says, the IPCC doesn't. But, repenting of her former ways, she adds, quote, Congratulations to all the proselytizers of climate doom. You have finally demonstrated an actual adverse impact of climate change that is actually caused by humans. Psychological distress, particularly among children who have yet to develop a clear sense of self and lack a context for being able to filter the, well, I'm going to say baloney, end quote. In the newsletter, we also made a new study by Roy Spencer on the size of urbanization biases in Canadian temperature data. Along with John Christie, he uses satellite measurements of land use change in various countries. Not to contrast readings from rural with urban temperature stations, because there are often too few rural stations to get a robust sample. Instead, they track 
temperature averages against changing land use. And to no one's surprise, except perhaps the experts who say, urbanization has played a big role in the apparent warming of Canadian cities. And finally, as temperatures plunge around us, even though we live in a city, we dip into the CO2 science archive to look at just how bad things got during the last glacial maximum. And sure enough, even in what is now California, trees were close to carbon starvation. I'm John Robson for the Climate Discussion Nexus, and I know the planet doesn't have too much CO2, it has too little.